Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Facebook, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Let It Rollcast. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. This week, the legendary Stanley Booth joins Nate to discuss the difficult genesis of his masterpiece, The True Adventures of the Rolling Stones, and reveals what he saw in Brian Jones's eyes, what it was like being on stage at Altamont, and his life and death struggle to tell the story of the Stones. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. And today I've got the great honor of being joined once again by Stanley Booth. And today we're going to talk about The True Adventures of the Rolling Stones, a book which has been called, and I believe it to be true, The One Authentic Masterpiece of Rock and Roll Writing. Stanley, welcome. Uh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. And this book uh, is a classic, legendary account of the Rolling Stones' 1969 tour, which you accompanied them on, Correct. Yeah, and look, I, I I I have to toot my own horn here. A guy wrote a review in uh, uh, a newspaper in Arkansas and called me the Stones Boswell. I As think you know, that's James, James of course. Boswell was, was the great uh, biographer of Samuel Johnson, and I think being called the Stones Boswell is. That um, I have to say, that was a nice thing uh, on his part. And and I have to agree. And I think I've read, if not all the Stones biographies, ninety five percent of them. And this is by far, to well, me, it's in a separate wasted, category. You 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 have wasted a great deal of time, my friend. I have, and I have to blame you, Stanley. I read your book when I was about sixteen or seventeen, and you set me on this path of fascination with the Rolling Stones, in particular Brian Jones, from which I have barely recovered. Well, Brian was uh, a unique person, and I, you know, I still miss Brian. Brian was, uh, you know, he was my friend, and he was, you know, he, Brian and I were very close. I never had any problems with Brian. A lot of other people had problems with Brian, but um, 
I, I, I'll never forget that night that Joe Bergman called and told me that Brian was, had died. Um, because Brian was really, at heart, a very sweet person. But he could really be difficult, you know. And he was more difficult to himself than anybody else. And you say in the book that on your first trip to England, um, when you went to Brian Jones' second drug trial, that you had only glimpsed the mystery of the Stones in his eyes. What did you mean about that, by seeing the mystery of the Rolling Stones in Brian Jones' eyes? Well, well, I saw Brian on – Brian took the stand, and he uh, he uh, he looked up, and our eyes met, and I saw this panic in his eyes panic in the sense of the god pan and uh i knew that there was more to this story than i had anticipated and you spent the next several years uh digging to the bottom of that and at one point i want to quote a little uh thing you describe a movie that you hallucinated in which you lay out the roles of the stones as you would see them in your movie you've got bill wyman the sinister vicar Charlie Watts, the mute but honest gravedigger. Brian, the wicked renegade, a mad gleeful spirit of chaos hanging around the place. And Keith as Mick's evil alter ego. But you never define Mick Jagger's role, and he remains enigmatic through the whole thing. If you well, if you were going to... That was because Mick and I were on a plane, and I was telling Mick the story. And um, I didn't want to, you know, queer the deal. I, um, um, I mean, I, if, you, if you're describing a movie to, to Mick Jagger, in which Mick is a um, is a character, uh, you gotta step lightly, you know. And, and so now that I've got you here, what and, would Mick's and, character? And, 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 and the, the thing is that I did have that vision. And of course, it was something that could never happen because Brian was 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 no longer, you know. But but um, it was it, it made for interesting conversation on the on the pre-flight. And it certainly makes for a vivid image, right? I got to ask again: What would mix role in your vision? Do you can you pull that back up, or is it lost? Uh, he he would have been, I suppose, the uh, the master of the estate. Because, you know, Mick has to be master of wherever he is. And you make that very clear. I mean, Mick, Mick, Mick has to, at least in his own mind, be the boss. And, and you make that very clear through the book. And you describe at one point you got to see Alan Klein and Mick Jagger having a discussion, if not quite an argument, but you say that you saw Mick dismiss Klein with a wave of his hand and realize then how powerful Mick was. Right, yeah. Uh, well, you know, um, it was interesting because at that time, Alan Klein appeared uh, invincible. You know, he had the Beatles, he had, and, and, and Bob Dylan sent the Stones a telex in those days we used telex as something called a telex which is kind of like a fax and and dylan said don't sign with this guy and they didn't listen well yeah i mean they 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 
they signed with them, but they soon realized their error and uh, and you know and and but you know they were kind of like it was kind of like the situation with Stax and Atlantic. They, I mean, they were rock and rollers, right? They liked to rock and roll. They liked to have a good time. Their specialty was really not reading contracts, which is how Abco became the proprietor of all of that great early Stone stuff. And you you structured the book in an unusual way, and you, and you, you talk in the afterward that you that it the literary qualities of the book, at least the way they tried to market it, might have held it back. But let's talk about the structure book for a second. You you start each section with you know, new journalism, first person on the scene reporting from Altamont with the Stones. And then you go into a series of alternating chapters where you're, it's sort of the adventures of Stanley Booth on the road with the Rolling Stones in 1969, alternating with chapters that are essentially the story of Brian Jones and the Rolling Stones. It's not that he dominates those. It it switches from, uh, from our tour in 69 to, uh, uh, I mean, Brian was in a way the central figure, but what I was trying to do was uh, uh, um, was um, just without being boring, uh, give the history of the uh, of, of the band as they developed, uh, you know, and, and I, the the. Uh, there's prefacing uh, passages uh, or because I knew what was coming, you know, I knew that Altima was coming and, uh, and, and I knew it was going to be awful. And that was one reason I tried as hard as I could to be funny every chance I got. And that's uh, essential because you, by starting the book in Altamont the night before their concert, their fatal concert, um, it puts this aura of, of doom and brooding over the whole book. And in the first couple of pages, you talk about Mick and Keith going through, walking through the nighttime scene where all the kids are camped out getting ready for the show. And you say, yeah, the, the, uh, Mick, Mick and Keith and, uh, and Ronnie and, and Tony Funches and I went out, um, and none of the rest of them had enough interest in the thing to uh, to even go out there, you know. And and it was a question as we were leaving the Huntington Hotel. I mean, I remember um, I wanted to go because I, you know, I mean that's what I do. I hang out, I see things, I write them down, and. Um, and Mick was upstairs, and uh, and Keith was on the stairs, uh, and he said, "Are you coming?" You know, it's like uh, there was still a question, even as we got into the limo to go out there, out out to Altamont, of whether we were even going to bother to go. And and you get this quote in there, and it's not a quote; it's your description of how Mick and Keith are smiling. It's their little joke to have the power to create this huge gathering by simply wishing for it aloud and the freedom to walk like anybody else along the busy barren path. And it's... So it, 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 it was, in, in a sense, a joke. It was also 
a measure of how little they knew about what they were about to get into. And you paint that very clearly. Like they had their experience to the Hells Angels was limited to their uh, Hyde Park concert in London a few months earlier, where they had the English Hells Angels, who were not at all the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The English Hells Angels are like Boy Scouts. And then, and the uh, and the, and, and the American Hells Angels are not like Boy Scouts, as you know. <laughs> very, very clear. And I think it's telling. There's another quote in there uh, from Shirley Watts, Charlie Watts' wife, and that you know you mentioned Charlie whom I, and Bill, who, who, whom I love, by the way. People have, have asked me, "Who's your favorite Rolling Stone?" And I say, "Shirley Watts." <laughs> That comes through in the book. Um, but she says, you know, along the lines of Charlie and Bill not going out or Mick Taylor going out to see Altamont, that Charlie and Bill aren't really stones, are they? Mick, Keith, and Brian. That's right. That's what she said. She said, you know, and 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 to her and really to Charlie, uh, they weren't part of that pop thing, you know? I mean, Charlie, like me, uh, was just a jazz fan, you know. Uh, he was just somebody who played uh, excellent uh, brush drums and loved, um, um, you know, uh, the great jazz drummers and uh, and that that whole pop scene. And in fact, uh, on the way back from Altamont, we're driving Mick and I are driving back to San Francisco to get a little few hours sleep before the before the uh, gig the next day and I said I don't know man you believe in all this generation revolution hype a lot more than I do and and, and Nick denies it he says no no I, I don't really I don't really but he really did and um, and he paid for it you know yeah, absolutely. And so you were already leery of that, but you were still engaged in some of the idealism and the optimism of that time. Well, it was an optimistic time. It was an idealistic time. And um, and and at the end, I think Mick's um, character was born out because John James said that there are cops that are willing to take you out and Mick said, no, I ain't going out with the cops. And that outlaw imagery. And, 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 you know, and, and, and I thought, you know, I put my arm around him because I thought this is a great guy. <laughs> and, you, and you use that outlaw imagery throughout the book. When you describe being at the trial, Brian Jones' second trial in London in 68, and you describe a moment when Keith and Mick come into the trial for the first time, and you describe it as literally – you know, the younger brothers coming in to see yeah, yeah, Bob Younger. Exactly, exactly right. Like like Cole, Jim, and Bob. Uh, and as a matter of fact, I knew a guy in Memphis who was an artist, and his family owned property in in Missouri. And they there was a cave on the property, and somebody had written in, um, in, in, in um, soot on the wall, Cole, Jim, and Bob. And and that's where that came from. I remembered uh, that writing on the wall, and I thought, "Wow, this is that's 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 uh, these are those guys." 
And so they put off that aura of brotherly togetherness at that point. Did you have any feel any suspicion at that point for how deep the rifts were between the three of them? Oh no, not at all. No, they were so close. They, they were. I mean, it, look. You know, if you, if you, man, if you and I were friends, and we were friends for fifty years, there would be times when we were not as close as we had been, right? You know, I mean, yeah, things, things happen, and and sometimes. You know, things happen, you know, people get offended, people, you know, and, and, and they got old, you know, I mean, they're, they're, they're grandfathers, great grandfathers now. I mean, you know, it, it all, it all changes, life changes, but, um, but no, I had, I had no sense. I mean, we were all brothers at that point. We loved each other. And and you quote Stu Sutcliffe describing the closeness, the musical closeness of Brian and Keith. Uh, you quote him saying, Brian and Keith had this guitar thing like you wouldn't believe. There was never any suggestion that's of a what lead. Stu said. That, that's what yeah. Stu said. Yeah. A lead and a rhythm player. And, they were, and, and it was true because that was all they did. They stayed inside in that funky little apartment and played guitar until they had it down like one guitar player. Yeah, two guitar players that were like somebody's right and left hand. And I want to play our first song, which is this is the Rolling Stones doing Jimmy Reed's Bright Lights Big City at their very first recording session with Glenn Johnson that was never commercially released. The Stones doing Bright Lights right. Big wonderful, City. Wonderful, wonderful. This is this is great. Thank you. And that was the Stones, and that's one of the best examples of the early Stones with Brian and Keith, Brian Jones and Keith Richards playing like two guitars or one guitarist with four hands. Um, that's right. Yeah. And and so that kind of music, musical closeness, you just can't fake. I mean, you can hear the brotherhood between uh, Keith and Brian, but the way Keith and Stu and others told you the story. It seemed like there was always like it was either Brian and Mick that were close, or Keith and Brian that were close, or Brian and or I mean Keith and Mick that were close. What do you what do you make of that dynamic where well, it was always an I, uneven I, triangle? I, I, I think I think that's just a basic human dynamic. Uh, I mean, if there are three people and they're they're all three friends, I think the dynamic is that two of them are close and they get not so close and and it you know it moves it changes but um but but you know at, at that time the situation was so fluid i mean they were they were just about to meet uh um um andrew oldham and um, you know and and they were about to leave uh eric uh, uh, uh eastwood it had been had 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 visions of being their manager, and uh, and Brian was about to lie their way out of a, a recording contract. I mean, the you know the whole idea was succeeding, 
and they did what it took. And in the in the second chapter of the book, you open one of the first of your quotes. You've got a whole series of quotes, mainly about Buddy Bolden, the great New Orleans jazz player. But in the first chapter, or the second chapter, you have a quote from Mississippi Joe Calicott, which is he's describing a story where some of his musical partners were poisoned one and killed the other. They'd done it because he could play poisoned better than they could. Poisoned one and killed the other, yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> then it... He said, I, he said, I'm going to go to, go to New York and play. He said, I'm going to be like a monkey. I ain't lying. <laughs> and you end that chapter with saying, with a, with a quote from Anita Pallenberg, who says, Brian's fall wasn't my fault or because of drugs. It was Mick and Keith. Well, I mean, take that for what it's worth, you know. <laughs> yeah, I knew you, there was not a lot to elaborate on there, uh, uh, but I had to get – to get that quote in there. And and also in that chapter, you describe interviewing uh, Brian's parents. And you're one of the very few writers that got to them. They mentioned other writers coming to them, but I have read tons of Stones literature, and there are very few interviews with Mr. and Mrs. Jones. What was it like interviewing well, they, them in they, 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 they were not easy to get to. They were not easy to talk to. Uh, they had, as far as they were concerned a lot to be ashamed of because they didn't want Brian to be a musician at all. They wanted him to work at Rolls Royce like his father, you know, or be a music teacher like his mother. Uh, I mean, this was not what they envisioned for their son, Brian. And, and, and Brian was, aside from being the great musician he was, he, he, he was, um, gifted in many ways. He was a very, very good student, and he could have done many things, but he was in love with jazz the way the, you know, the rest of us nuts were in love with jazz, and um, and that is that turned out to be his, his destiny and his doom, I'm sorry to say. And yeah, and his father describes all those talents and then says so much talent wasted. And it's funny to think of somebody who's an internationally famous musician who changed the course of popular music history as a waste of talent. But that's all his father but, but, could see. But, 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 but to Lewis, Brian's father, it was wasted because, I mean, look, my father wanted me to be an insurance salesman, you know. My parents wanted me to be a teacher, and I have been a teacher all my life in different ways, but not in the way they envisioned. And, um, you know, uh, to to Lewis uh, Jones, um, Brian's father, uh, Brian was just throwing his life away. And in some sense, you know, he was right. I mean, uh, in some lost- sense, I mean, all 26, 27 years of it. Yeah, and and you've kind of already answered this question um, with your statement of Brian's eyes having the spirit of panic in him. But you talk about the how much Lewis looked like his son, and the same posture, same frame, same short arms and small strong hands, but without the quality of Brian's eyes from of being lit from within. Well, that that is true. I mean, I mean, Brian, uh, Brian's father didn't have that glamorous. Appearance, you know, with Brian's beautiful blonde hair and all that, but um, but they did look very much alike physically. 
and yet something was very different in there. And at one point in the book, Stu, Ian Stewart, Stu, says that even if there had never been an Ian Stewart or a Brian Jones or a Charlie or Bill, that making Keith would still have had a band that, that looked and sounded very much like the Stones. But do you think they would have had that same element of panic of, of, as in the great God Pan that Brian brought to the well, band? Well, you, you, I mean, one would hope not, you know, Stu <laughs> had, Stu had a unique perspective on the Stones because, uh, I mean, uh, let's face it. I mean, they threw him out. You know, and and Stu had the strength of character that even having been thrown out, he stayed and and you know and, and played brilliant uh piano on on a lot of things. But uh, but I'll tell you what, man, Stu was a very strong person but he really didn't care about being a pop star. What Stu cared about was playing golf. You know, and, yeah. and listening to listening to Albert Ammons and Mead Lux Lewis. And and he contributed so much and he's a great source for you in the book. And and um once again it's it's amazing all the people that you were able to get to open up and, and, and some of the scenes you describe of of being there uh in their rented house in Los Angeles. I think it was Peter Tork's house well, maybe from the monkeys. Uh, 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 um, you know, Alexis Corner was very kind to me. You know, I think one reason people were so kind and open with me was that uh, I obviously wasn't in it for the money. Even though, uh, as part of the book, you describe a lot of the business dealings you go through uh, with oh, your yeah, book. Yeah, I mean, I did want to make a living. I wanted to survive, but it wasn't, to me, I wasn't trying to write a big uh, pop book and you know and 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 be like um, you know have it have it be like that. I, I I just wanted to tell the truth and and have it um, you know. And my attitude in going into writing the book was that if somebody picked this book up a hundred years from now and never heard of the Rolling Stones. I wanted them to find the characters interesting in in themselves. And you absolutely succeeded. And at one point, you mentioned that uh, Joe Bergman, who was uh, a major operator in the Stones organization, although, as you say, it's never exactly clear what she did. And you even say she didn't know exactly and, what and, she and did. They didn't know, and she didn't know. I mean, <laughs> that, 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 was, that was typical of the Stones. You know, they... they Nobody knew exactly what was going on. And and she tells you at some point, long after you've already committed to this project, that she uh, had been told by a fortune teller, I believe, um, that you would write the book, but that it would cost you everything. Except my life. Except your life. And and from your telling, it pretty much did. Tell us some of the price you paid to come back with this. Well, I... Uh, it- you know, um, I lost uh, people from my life. I lost, uh, you know, you lose lovers. You lose, um, yeah. I mean, I, the, the the thing about writing that book was that it was so dark. You know, I knew the ending was going to be so dark, and I was just trying to make it 
not just be a uh, an unpleasant, sad experience for the reader. You know, I wanted it to be, I wanted it to be true, but I didn't want it to be just, uh, you know, to use the parlance of the time. I didn't want it to be just a bummer. You know. Yeah, and I think I think your method of telling the story from the scene, you know, moment by moment. It keeps it light and lively because people like Keith Richards are always saying funny shit. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, so let's hear another well, song. This is uh, the Rolling Stones from their last tour with Brian Jones in Europe in 1967 doing Yesterday's Papers. was the stones uh 1967 doing a live version of yesterday's papers and and that you know we've heard the beginning and the end of the brian jones era with the band and the rest of the song show where, will where, be, uh, uh, where, where, where was that from where was that live track from that was in paris i believe um okay. and they do it okay. they do it you know, the, you know the stones were the first rock and roll band to go behind the iron curtain because they went to Warsaw, and uh, one of the editions of my books has a um, has a, a sheaf of photographs of uh, of the Stones uh, playing in, in Warsaw, Poland, and I, I always thought that was cool. That even though they were not politically inclined or interested in politics, they uh, they were the first band to go behind the Iron Curtain and uh, and 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 show them what freedom looked like, you know. And triggered a riot uh, about as big as the ones that they had triggered in Denmark a couple in West Germany a couple of years earlier. So, um, and uh, the the rest of the most of the book t- though takes place in the Mick Taylor era of the Rolling Stones and. and which a lot of people consider their greatest musical accomplishment because, you know, everything from uh, Let It Bleed, Sticky Fingers, Exile, Main Street. And oh, yeah. yeah well, I mean, Little Mick was a, a, a brilliant musician, and I'm sure he asked himself every night, why did I leave that band? <laughs> and yet he's alive to ask that question, which he might not be, yet he stayed. Yeah, exactly. And and uh, and and little Mick is kind of a ghostly presence in the book, um, but you you've got a quote in there from Bill Wyman that talks about the difference between the Brian Jones years and Mick Taylor, and he says that you know Keith has a habit of turning his amp up all the way through the show, and when Brian mm-hmm. was there, Brian would just turn his amp up just as loud, whereas Mick says you're playing too loud and tries to get him to turn down, which is a futile quest. Exactly, and so. Um, but they also, you know, we talk about the riots they trigger, and and you describe an early riot that they that they experienced in Blackpool, where the Glasgow, the Glaswegians. Oh my God! Scotland. Yeah, yeah. Stu says it's the toughest town in the world. I said, in the world, 
<laughs> yeah, there's a German word that that means Glaswegian that translates literally as poison dwarf, and so they've faced him in a number of wars and and uh, know what they're yeah, dealing with. I mean, and 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 every instrument got destroyed. It was it was just it was sheer havoc, you know. But um, but that that was that was the scene at the time. I mean the. Uh, uh, they were they were just a part of this mad force, societal force that um, that uh, they had to um, you know for one thing they had to survive it and 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 it, you know it all changed it's completely different now but uh, uh, but but they um, but who thought they were going to last over fifty years? You know, my 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 uh, the girl I am going to marry, uh, Alexandra, who was born in nineteen eighty six. By the way, congratulations! Her father, her, her father saw them in Chicago uh, a few days ago. Uh, at Soldiers Field, along with sixty thousand other people, and you know, and they did they did uh, uh, play with fire. They did uh, paint it black. They did songs. I have never even all the times I've seen them, I've never seen them do those songs. And I thought, well, you know, if I couldn't be there to see it, at least Alex and her dad could see it. And and. You know, the difference when you go and see the Stones now, and it's a crowd with a lot of salt and pepper hair uh, in the audience, is very different. It's hard to imagine what it was like in the 60s. But when you describe the Blackpool riot, you have a sentence that you added, uh, what difference does it make whether one is being torn apart by one's enemies or one's friends? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's a good question, isn't it? Yeah, and it makes me think of Orpheus, you know, and and being ripped apart um, by – the worshippers of Dionysius, the very his fans, essentially. Exactly. I mean, you go down that pit, and um, and you, you and uh, you you're just likely not to come out alive. And and throughout the book, you tell little snippets or, or quotes from people writing about the great Buddy Bolden, who's the never recorded precursor of King Oliver and Louis Armstrong in New Orleans well, jazz. Well, 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 now, we don't know for certain that he never recorded. There may somewhere be a cylinder of Buddy Bolden, and if we find it, uh, I'm going to sell it. <laughs> well, I'll keep my fingers crossed that somebody finds it. But you picked Buddy Bolden. What was well, the exact he, connection? He, he he was the ur figure. He was the mad artist. He was he was um, you know I mean he he went he um, he 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 went nuts and um, and it, it, there's this connection between madness and this music that um, is uh, has always been there and. Uh, it's uh, it's interesting to see that um, you know it it really didn't happen to the Stones. I mean they're millionaires, but uh, it uh, it it was there was a genuine danger there. 
And and that's one thing that you sort of play up a theme that the Stones are sort of playing with fire. And, and we mentioned already that they didn't know what they were dealing with, but you, you've got the quotes from the press conference where Mick first starts musing about the idea of, of a free concert, but in a very right. evasive way. And maybe we can do something for the people. Uh, did you see it at the time or was that something you realized later that the extent to which Mick's casualness about a free concert was going to lead to disaster well, or trouble? It, 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 it was uh, 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 casual in a way and there was no I mean look they had done this tour and they had not done a tour for three years and they were simply trying to do something to say thank you for the fans and I mean and there's all that stuff that people say about the songs waited for nightfall you know and they they invited the Hells Angels. They didn't invite the Hells Angels to do anything. It was a free concert. Anybody could come. And about 500 Hells Angels came and behaved like Hells Angels. And and yet you talk about the, another thread that you weave through the book is Mick's messianic. There's even a point at which... You quote Joe Bergman saying, Mick's recently come across the word messianic, and he's quite fascinated mm-hmm. with it. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's something that was, uh, I would say, rather unfortunate that Mick kind of hooked onto that uh, concept. And yet, at the time, I mean, and you've got this quote from a broadsheet that was being passed out in Oakland, which, you know, the mm-hmm. Bay Area was one of the big hotbeds of 60s radicalism. And right. it's this, you know, six-paragraph manifesto, basically putting the stones in the position as if they're the leaders, the Che Guevara of a, of a youth revolution. I mean, do you think it was just unavoidable that they would get caught up to some extent in believing that hype? Well, uh, it's hard to say at this point uh, that uh, was. Uh, I intended that 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 my quoting that uh, that sheet was um, intended to be ironic because uh, because they really. I mean, they weren't trying to be a social revolutionaries. They were just trying to, you know, as I say at Altamont, they were just trying to do a nice thing for their fans. And they, if they had known, which they did not, uh, what the American Hells Angels were like and what they were capable of, they wouldn't have done it. We wouldn't have gone there. We, w- we would not have done that. And, you know, I think we would have been just as well off not to do it. Now, I have said that uh, I thought we should have done we should have done it again the next night. But um, I think I've kind of retreated from that position. (laughs) <laughs> and you've got a you describe it at one point in the book as saying the biggest group of playmates in history was having recess with no teachers to protect them from the bad boys, the bullies, who may have been mistreated children and worthy of understanding, but would nevertheless kill you. The Stone's music was strong, but it could not stop the terror. That's right. That is uh, that is that 
Did I write that? You wrote that, Stanley. You nailed it. And I know it's hard to follow something up because you nailed it there in the quote I just read. But I, I, I like you know, it. You, you, you know what? That's not bad. That's pretty good. <laughs> and the whole book is full of this, folks. It's, it's, it's a good 380 pages of just classic. And at one point you said that you wanted every word of dialogue to sound like it could have come out of uh, Raymond Chandler's Philip Marlowe's mouth. I did. I love Raymond Chandler. You know, and and as much as I love Raymond Chandler, I admire Dashiell Hammett e- even more, but I'm not crazy enough to think I can write as well as Dashiell Hammett. But I did get to where I could almost write like Ray Chandler. And, yeah, and this book is beautifully written all the way through. And, and you've got this conversation in here of you and Mick and Keith after Altamont and and Mick's shock, you know, he's saying, Mick sat on a wooden bench, eyes still hurt and angry, bewildered and scared, not understanding who the Hell's Angels were or why they were killing people at his free peace and love show. How could anybody think those people are good? Think they're people you should have around. And like, but yeah. the Angels had been the 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 hippies, you know, the, from Ken Casey and the Grateful Dead and the Dead. Rock Scully probably did invite the Angels, but not the Stones. But, I mean, they had been flirting with with the Angels on and off for several years, even after the Angels had turned on them at some of the uh, free speech rallies. Yeah, and and of course, uh, Hunter Thompson had had written uh, a strange and terrible saga about about the Angels and the uh, the dead that had 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 the Angels at some of their gigs. And, And so there was a relationship there in San Francisco, a pre-existing relationship that was, uh, um, you know, it, 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 it was, it wasn't, but, uh, but, but the stones were just, were not part of that. They were not, uh, um, uh, part of an ethos and it, uh, it just it it all turned into a night. I mean, uh, you know, Meredith Hunter was right in front of my face when he was uh, stabbed to death by that angel, and uh, and it was. Um, I mean, nobody expected it to turn into the horror it became. And the next song I'm going to play is the Stones doing I'm Free at their London Hyde Park concert in 1969. This is I'm Free. We'll hear it and then ask Stanley about that song. I'm Free, uh, the first time Mick Taylor had played it live with the Stones. And that song is sort of a sore subject for you in the book. You talk about it over and over again and sort of wrestle with the implications of it and and then playing it. Talk a little about that song and why it sort of stuck in your craw, that whole tour. Well, I mean, I'm Free is an, it's an enormous thing to say. It's a very... Um, it's a huge um, declaration, and um, uh, I didn't get along particularly well with Glenn Johns, 
But Glenn John said what I must agree with. When he says I'm free, he's talking out his arse. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, he's he's declaring freedom that that he can't that, have, that, and that he can't have, that, that nobody can have. I mean, certainly not under those circumstances. But I mean, Nick. Uh, uh, you know, I love him. He's my friend. Uh, we've known each other forever, but he has written some really bad songs and he, he, um, um, is quite willing to do them, you know? <laughs> and, and you, you've got a, a scene in there, um, where you're talking to, uh, a woman named Kathy that that knew the Stones, and and she says, um, Mick used to play act and tell everybody to fuck off. Now I'm being myself, and everybody tells me to fuck off. He's so great. He's natural and sweet when we're alone, but when one other person could come in, and he's completely different, and you can't communicate with him at all. Like, that is very true. That is very true. If it's if it's Kathy of Kathy and Mary, the groupie, uh, the groupie duo, um, um, if if you and Nick were talking right now, it would be the way you and I are talking. You know, we just we're just talking. You know, we're we're not trying to impress anybody. We're not being uh, particularly anything except just straightforward and honest but um but one other person can come in and make is uh, he nick jagger is the most insecure person in the world and why that should be the case i really have never been able to figure out because how hard can as keith asked me once how hard can it be to be mick jagger <laughs> Apparently, it's pretty difficult, and only one person has gotten to walk that road. And and the way you structure the book, it's got the effect of basically like two plot lines that both reach a climax at the same time. And and that you said you architected it that way deliberately. That the disaster at Altamont and the funeral of Brian Jones are tied together to happen at the same point. It's it's like you say with your struggle. I mean, it's almost overwhelming, and you describe. Shirley Arnold, who was the head of the Stones fan club, and, and one of the true only basically innocent people in this whole story. Radio interview, please. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, and yeah. and she tells you her story of her experience of his funeral, and she doesn't quite fall into the grave, but metaphorically does. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. That, that that to me that that. Um, was extremely effective that that Shirley, who had been so close to Brian, um, felt herself descending into that pit. And of course, it was just a, a, a mental impression. But um, it uh, it was um, I thought it made a powerful um, ending for a chapter, at least. Absolutely, and and it ties back into a scene that you uh, had described to you early earlier by William Burroughs and Brian Geisen, who had taken Brian around in Morocco, and and while he right. was recording the Master Musicians of Jujuka, they were at a feast, and there was a white goat. And when Brian first saw the white goat, he leaps up and says, "That's me." And then later on, he realizes that they've 
a few hours later that they've eaten that same goat. And his comment is, it's like communion. Did you? Yeah, and I, and, and I pointed out that Jesus did not eat himself. He fed the others. And, 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 and Burroughs, God bless him, said, uh, next time I see uh, Graham Greene, I'm going to eat him. Gulp. <laughs> and that's uh, pretty perfect. And it captures William Burroughs uh, in a nice thumbnail portrait. But did you, I mean, you're, you, you know, you're, you're dealing with a, a subject where you've got one character that you're calling messianic, or at least saying that he's flirting with being messianic, and another character who is sort of the sacrifice. And, and how conscious were you of, of the Jesus and Christian imagery and also the, you know, the Dionysius myth. I mean, he's killed and brought back to life. I mean, how much were you conscious of what you were playing with and how much of it was just coming out? Oh, well, I'm not sure. I quite understand that. I, uh, um, you know, they were all, they were all different. They were all, um, uh, I mean, it's amazing that this band has stayed together all these years because because uh, uh, they were so radically different from each other. And, uh, I mean, that must have had something to do with the uh, dichotomy between uh, Mick and Keith that led the band to separate for years, you know. Uh, but they, um, they, but as Keith said, it's bigger than both of us. So and, they, um, they, they, they dragged it back together. And, 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 and you know, I, I saw, I saw a TV interview with Charlie, and Charlie said that, you know, if we said uh, we'll retire, we'll hang it up, um, um, you know, it wouldn't bother me, and it wouldn't. I mean, Charlie would be perfectly happy to stay home with Shirley and um, just, um, you know, hang around and and play with his jazz record, you know. But Mick seems to need to go on. And we've kind of maybe given Keith short shrift in this conversation, but in a lot of way, he's the, pers- the stone that you know the best in the book. He comes through the best. You spend the most time with him. And yet he's still pretty enigmatic. I mean, in your vision, you know, you call Keith Mick's evil alter ego, but Keith really comes across as more sympathetic than Mick. Why the evil alter ego with Keith? Mm, I probably shouldn't have said that. Um, <laughs> Keith, um, uh, Keith and I became very close very quickly, and I think it's partly because we like the same things. We like uh, blues. We like girls we like drugs but um uh we just um um Keith Keith and I had a great um um similarity of character I would say because we neither of us have any um diplomacy whatsoever and um you know if something comes up we say it and uh, I mean, it's like when when we're at the uh, uh, restaurant in New York, and and Keith says we're going to the deep south, and I said, oh yeah, and what in your opinion is the deep south? 
like as if you know, you know. I mean, yeah. I mean, and uh, but um, but Keith likes that. I mean, and I like it. I like for people to be honest, and and um, so we, uh, you know, we somehow miraculously we're still friends. And and let's hear one last song. This is the Stones at Altamont doing "Under My Thumb." the Rolling Stones at Altamont Mick Jagger heard at the beginning of that track trying to calm the crowd and you were right there when Meredith Hunter was killed did you realize at that moment that uh, like Keith was on stage and could tell something bad had happened but did you have any idea how bad until later or did you know right away well um, I think the Maisel's brothers and Charlotte's were and did a brilliant job putting together Give Me Shelter the DVD, uh, the documentary about uh, about the '69 tour, um, but it gives a, a false impression of what actually happened. Uh, Give me shelter makes you think that a guy got killed and everybody split. What happened was a guy got killed and nobody knew he had died, and. Um, the Stones stayed there for at least another solid hour and played one of the most brilliant concerts of the tour. Uh, they just, um, they were absolutely heroic. And I have the tape of what they did that night. And uh, I mean, anybody else would have turned and run and they stayed there and played like geniuses like angels and kept the crowd calm or as calm as they could it delivered their show yeah, well I mean, no 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 the, the, the weird thing was that the crowd calmed the crowd the crowd became calm and it wasn't it, it was uh i'm sure it had something to do with the brilliance of the song's performance but um it wasn't um uh, you know, it, it wasn't, there wasn't any, um, anything magical going on. It was just that the Stones played so well and everybody settled down and listened. And, and, and then it, the- it, 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 it was, it, it was, a, it was an incredible thing. And I love what, what, uh, Graham said when we were back at the Huntington Hotel. And Mick and Keith is making say, how can anybody say how they're, they're good people or they're good to be around? And and and, and Graham says the angels are just a bunch of bozos. <laughs> and that's a fair enough description. And I want to get one last question, and it's kind of complicated, but in the book you describe. Both Marianne Faithful, who is Mick Jagger's soon-to-be ex, and Anita Pallenberg as in the one case, Marianne Faithful, after Brian's death, went to Australia with Mick to film a movie and took an overdose of pills. 
and had a hallucination that she saw Brian in the mirror and you described the sort right, of vision right, she had right, of yeah. she and Brian in the afterworld and Brian essentially sent her back. And Anita, you describe as saying that she thought that, that her child with Keith, Marlon, would be Brian reincarnated and described that she kept pictures of Brian up in their bedroom. I mean, the women of the Stones are openly haunted by Brian Jones's death. Did you see that with Mick and Keith, or was it just sort of a shadow lurking? Oh around? yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was in uh, in their bedroom, and I saw uh, this picture of Brian um, um, in in uh, in uh, uh, on, on, on a chest of drawers in a in a uh, gold frame. It wasn't a great big picture. It was just a picture of Brian, and um, and but they were very. Uh, and the thing that Anita said, you know, it wasn't. Um, you know, it, it was Mick and Keith. I mean, they were very open about um, what had happened and and whose role was was what. Yeah, and it's it's uh, heavy and haunting, and and has haunted us as a culture for fifty years. And Stanley Booth, the book is the true adventures of the Rolling Stones, and like it says on the on the book jacket, the one authentic masterpiece of rock and roll writing, hands down. I think the best book, greatest book. Uh, this it's beyond rock and roll to me. It's it's a key book in American literature. So Stanley, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been an honor. Well, I, I, I'll tell you what, you know. I don't often pick that book up, but when I do pick it up and look at it and read a little bit, I have to say I'm not ashamed of it. I'm damn right. And thank you, Stanley. Thank you. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Facebook, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Let It Rollcast. Nate will be back next week with Ted Joya to talk about the jazz standards. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. The True Adventures of the Rolling Stones is published by Chicago Review Press and is out in a new audiobook edition. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com. <laughs>